0: Hi, my name is Sarah. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 20 verses 1 through 2 and 15. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not steal. The word of the Lord.
1: Hi, my name is Evan. The New Testament reading is found in James 1:16 through 18 and 22 through 25. So, my very dear friends, don't get thrown off course. Every desirable and beneficial gift comes out of heaven. The gifts are rivers of light cascading down from the Father of light. There is nothing deceitful in God, nothing two-faced, nothing fickle. He brought us to life using the true word, showing us off as the crown of all his creatures. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but, letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are, what they look like. But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life even out of the corner of his eye and sticks with it is no distracted scatterbrain but a man or woman of action that person will find delight and affirmation in the action the word of the lord
0: hi my name is Jill if you are able please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 5:38 through 42 you
1: have heard that it was said The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to our Lord Christ.
0: Please remain standing for prayer. Most merciful God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, that it never returns void. We thank you that we get to read it publicly as a people and celebrate in it as a community. We ask that as we open it together that you would teach us, that you'd reveal more of yourself to us, that we would know you more and learn how to love you and love our neighbors as ourselves. We thank you for this time and we praise you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. All right, all right. Good morning. My name is Andrew. And, uh, woo, thanks, Glenn. Uh, my wife and I, Katie, moved here about three years ago to the Springs and planted ourselves here in New Life Downtown. And this has been a place of significant community and growth and life and celebration for us. Uh, many of you in this room have been a part of our growth in marriage and our participation in walking in the spiritual life together. So thank you so much for everyone that gives their time as volunteers uh, and our worship team. And don't we have amazing leadership here at New Life Downtown? Amazing. I'm so, so, so thankful uh, for Pastor Glenn and the conversations we've been able to have and his encouragement over the years, being able to nerd out about different things and also getting the Word together. Thankful for Glenn and Jason and Evan and the entire leadership team and for this chance to be with you guys here today. It's hot in here. It's smoky outside. You all still came, so thank you for being here with me today. Um, You know, one of the things that I became interested in in studying uh, for this talk uh, was the ways that we could rightly live into the invitation of the Eighth Commandment, how we could stick to not only the letter of the law, but the heart of the law. But even before that, uh, my mind went racing because I was kind of curious maybe who had most significantly in recent American history broken the Eighth Commandment in a pretty gnarly way. So I started doing a little bit of digging, trying to figure out who had taken in one fell swoop the most cash and one robbery because I wanted to know if this is what we're supposed to do, what does it look like on a grand scheme to do this the wrong way? Who is the most infamous Eighth Commandment breaker? So my mind jumped immediately to the 1920s, Roaring Twenties, Al Capone and Mobsters and Jack Dillinger and thought surely that was the period in which the most cash had ever been taken in one bank robbery. Uh, But I was surprised to learn that actually 1997 was the year in which the largest cash sum had ever been taken in one fell swoop in American history. I was also surprised to learn that uh, the participant in this crime had not been raised the mob or groomed for a criminal lifestyle, was actually just kind of an average, uh, everyday kind of guy. So back in the fall of 1997... A gentleman by the name of Alan Pace was actually working as a security guard, like lead security guard officer at the Dunbar Armored Car Company in Los Angeles, California. So as such, his job wasn't really to drive one of those cars around that we've seen probably here in the Springs, those big armored bulletproof trucks, but rather his job was to oversee the depot where those cars were stored on nights and weekends. And Alan kind of began to notice a pattern The pattern was this, that every Friday night, uh, the cars would come in, but they would be unable to make their deposits to the bank until Monday morning. Every other day of the week, they'd hit up the banks and then come to the warehouse mostly empty. But on Fridays, they had to wait for Monday morning to be able to make those large deposits. So Alan, with five of his high school friends, hatched a scheme. One Friday night, they showed up to the Dunbar Armored Car Company, uh, they rolled into the back door like of the depot, uh, pulling up in a rented U-Haul truck. Uh, and then they walked inside where they bound all of the security guards by duct tape, uh, hands behind their back, feet behind their back. And then they had this wheelbarrow that they had stolen or borrowed from one of their buddies' houses. And they started running wheelbarrow loads of cash from these security cars and into their U-Haul truck. Now, believe it or not, Alan and his friends made off with $19 million that evening, um, only $5 million of which was ever accounted for. And my mind was blown by this, because when I started digging into this, I expected some sort of Ocean's 11 kind of situation, elaborate schemes and disguises and tools but it doesn't get much more average than a rented U-Haul truck, duct tape, and a wheelbarrow. But this is how they accomplished it. And Alan didn't have a significant criminal record. In fact, to be a security officer with this company, he couldn't have a significant criminal background. So my mind was turning and one of the things I realized was that it doesn't take a criminal mastermind to transgress the Eighth Commandment in some pretty massive ways. And in fact, um, you know, it just takes opportunity aligning with unchecked or unmet desires. I think a lot of us would like to say, well, I would have been the better man, the better woman, and not taken $19 million. But that's tough to do when all that money is piled up in front of you. And so if your desires aren't in alignment with where the Lord wants your desires to be and you're presented with an opportunity, it's decision-making time. And I remember the first time I stole something, I don't know if you guys remember it, it wasn't worth $19 million, it was worth 25 cents, but it still burned into my memory. It's a a, a time that I will never forget. I was about five years old and we were on this road trip from Maryland to North Carolina. My family lived in Maryland at the time, we were going to visit some family in North Carolina. It's about a 10 hour drive. Uh, me and my two brothers were piled into this 1989 Plymouth Voyager wood-paneled van. I don't know if you guys remember these or anybody had these with a sliding door on the side, and we all jumped in there, kind of kicking each other, fighting for room early in the trip. Uh, and we get about two or three hours into this trip, and it's kind of time to refuel, stop and get some gas. And, um, you know, this was before the days of pay at the pump. So who remembers when you used to have to go inside to pay cash to get gas? Gas was also much cheaper then, so who knows? Maybe we need to regress to that. I'm not sure. But we had filled up our car, and my dad needed to go inside uh, to pay for the gas that we had purchased, and five-year-old Andrew kind of wanders inside with him, uh, and there's a bit of a line. The clerk's taking care of a couple other customers. And uh, if you remember being five, the checkout counter is kind of just like, eye level. So all of the impulse buys, the goodies, the candies, all the stuff that five, six, seven year olds want is right there. And that's when I saw it, one of my favorite goodies, zebra stripe gum. Has anybody ever had zebra stripe gum? It is delicious. Its flavor lasts about 10 seconds, but it is a glorious 10 seconds nonetheless. And so I grabbed that gum. I'm like, dad, 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 can I have this gum, please? And Dad said, you know, no, son, not today. Now, I know my dad's heart was always to be able to give us, as his sons, the things that our hearts desired if they were good for us. But in this particular situation, I'm sure that my dad was aware we had other gum and snacks in the car, and he also, probably very logically and wisely, uh, realized that five-year-old Andrew did not need any more sugar uh, for this 10-hour car ride. So he says no, and uh, I kind of make my peace with it temporarily, and we're getting kind of closer, and it's his turn to pay. He pulls out his billfold and is counting out cash to hand to the clerk, and right then and there, it was like this little voice like whispered, take that gum. And the other voice said, no, don't take that gum. And I listened to the wrong voice, and I reached out and grabbed it and shoved it down in my little pocket and was kind of looking around to make sure nobody had seen me. And to my surprise, no one had. The world was as it had once been. We started walking towards the door. We got to the door. And as we crossed that threshold, I remember feeling so many different things. And I probably couldn't have given language to them at five, but if I were to try to dissect them now, I think I was excited, I was a little nervous, Um, was pretty sure that I'd gotten away with something, and I probably also felt a degree of guilt and shame, a healthy sort of guilt and shame. Um, And so we walked out to the car and we're driving down the road. I was pretty sure I was a criminal mastermind at this point and was sort of plotting my next take. And then it happened, uh, not so smoothly, my dad looks in the rearview mirror and sees me chomping on gum in the, the back seat of the car. So he goes, Andrew, where'd you get that gum? I said, Dad, it, was, it was the moment of truth. The jig was kind of up. I said, Dad, I got it. Uh, I, I stole it. I stole it at the, the gas station. And before he could respond to that, I remember just crying, Dad, please, Dad, please, don't call the police, don't call the police. I'm so sorry, I don't want to go to jail. I'm not that bad of a person. Please, don't call the police. But my dad did something worse than calling the police. He turned the car around. And we went back to that gas station where I apologized to that clerk and returned the remaining four sticks of gum. And my dad gave him 25 cents to make things right. And um, man, it's, uh, it's true that there are big differences in earthly consequences and impact, especially when it comes to legality between 25 cents and $19 million. Alan Pace was eventually caught spent over 20 years in prison. Um, I had to go apologize to somebody. But there is a similarity in scope of the internal, I think, and eternal consequences of those moments. There's a fracturing that occurs between us and our neighbor and us and God. Even at five, I could feel something was off between me and my dad. I definitely didn't ever want to see that clerk again. Um, But here I was apologizing to him. So there's something internal and eternal that kind of ruptures when we we fail to heed the invitation of the Eighth Commandment. And that's true of all the commandments. But, you know, maybe you're out there thinking, well, Andrew, I knew the Eighth Commandment was coming this week, so I have not stolen anything recently. Uh, I'm glad you haven't, you know, running to Best Buy and stolen a flat-screen TV or, you know, jumped over the fence and took your neighbor's dog. Though confession... Uh, Sprouts, if you're out there, I think I did sample more than my fair share of banana chips uh, this past week, so I'm sorry, and I love you guys. Um, but if you haven't stolen something recently, I think there is an active invitation still in the eighth word. You know, we've been talking through this series that for every do, there is a do not. Every do not, there is a do. Walt Kaiser helpfully puts it this way. He says, when an evil is forbidden in one of the commandments, its opposite good must he understood as being encouraged. Let me say that again: when an evil is forbidden in one of the Ten Commandments, its opposite good must be understood as being encouraged. So put simply, every "do not" is a "do," and so I begin to wonder: well, do not steal? Perhaps there's those of us in our community that are wrestling with that. and We'll address that and dig into that. But what's the opposite invitation? Like, what's the corollary, the "do" here? And uh, Deuteronomy 15 actually really helped me unpack this idea. So Deuteronomy literally means second law. So the moment in Israel's history where they're receiving Deuteronomy is about 40 years or a generation after they received the Ten Commandments at Sinai. So you remember in Israel's history, they spent 400 years in slavery. They spent three months walking through the wilderness following the pillar of cloud and fire. They spent time with the Lord at the base of Sinai. And then, because of their disobedience and need for correction, They spent 40 years wandering the wilderness before God brought them into the promised land. And that moment right there is where Moses is sort of teeing up Deuteronomy. So if you read Deuteronomy, all the Ten Commandments are in there, but there's all these other customs and cultural guidelines that God is handing down because he wants to shape his people intentionally before they enter into the promised land. So Deuteronomy 15 says this, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land the Lord your God is giving you, You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release, is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. Now, that seventh year, the year of release, that, that language is for what's been known over time as the sabbatical year. God wanted to intentionally build into Israel's rhythms moments where unfair or uh, burdensome debts or interests could be released so that extreme economic disparity did not begin to pop up in the people of God in the Holy Land. But there's two phrases here in this passage that really helped me as I was trying to wrap my mind around the invitation of the eighth word. And the first was this Your land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's this gentle reminder, kind of sandwiched into what I think would have been a tough teaching. It's a tough teaching for us to receive today. It would have been a tough teaching for Israel to receive initially, the idea that they needed to be very generous and open-handed with the things God had given them. Many of them would have thought about the ways and the hours they had logged and they had worked hard. But there's a reminder here that any sort of wealth properly gained and is still God-honoring, all of the recipients of this message initially, 40 years prior, were slaves together toiling away. So here's this moment where God's reminding them, listen, everything you're about to receive as you step into the Holy Land is a gift from me. And all I'm asking you to do is to be open-handed with the things that I've given you, because I know it's good for you, it's good for my people, and it's good for the life of the world. The second phrase that really stood out to me, you, you might have heard some of this language already, is you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend to him sufficient for his need. And that was sort of my aha moment. Aha! This is the corollary to do not steal. It's not just a smug satisfaction of wealth properly gained, again, wealth not being necessarily bad, but at the same time, it, the, the, the corollary is not closed-fisted living, but open-handed living. And so after having kind of established that, I began to wonder, well, Why? Why do we choose to live closed-fistedly when in our hearts, deep inside, on our best days, we know that living open-handedly is good for us, it's good for our neighbor, it's good for our community, but we still have this proclivity to choose closed-handed living? Well, you know, I think think there's three reasons why we typically choose closed-fisted living. Now, these are not all, but I think some of the most prominent, and the first is lack, simple lack. It can be summarized in the phrase, I don't have enough. Now, I think there's two different types of lack. There is physical, material, crippling poverty kind of lack, and then there's also a lack mentality, a scarcity mindset that no matter how well off we are, some of us will always carry that through our lives. Either way, I think there is an, an invitation for us to heed um, surrounding the eighth word when it comes to lack. The first thing I'll say is this, is that for the person in community that is wrestling and struggling with crippling poverty, uh, maybe it's some bad decisions they made that have put them there. Maybe it's just unfair hand that they've been dealt in life. Scripture's clear that the ends don't justify the means, But at the same time, we look at passages like Deuteronomy 15 and Jesus' words to us today from the Gospels and realize that God's heart, God's Father's heart is so intimately for people that are struggling or having to make tough choices. While those choices may not be validated, God loves you so deeply and so much and wants to help be a part of the provision that I think you're seeking. Two-part invitation here with lack: One, embrace the provision of God. To embrace generosity or embrace being the provision of God. Now, if we were to just backtrack a few chapters, we're in Exodus 20 today, Sinai. If you were to jump back to Exodus 16 and Exodus 17, there's two key moments in Israel's journey. Again, this is in that three months of wilderness where they're following the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire before they get to Sinai. And in Exodus 16 and 17, during that three-month period, the Israelites saw manna poured out from heaven and water gushed forth from a dry rock. God was literally meeting their most intimate felt needs in real time. Yet, a month and a half later, when he's handing down these 10 markers for what their community should look like, he has to gently remind them again, don't put your hand on your neighbor's bread. I'm, I'm going to provide for you. You saw me miraculously provide in the wilderness. I think all of us in this room, myself included, have had these manna from heaven or water from rock moments, Lord willing. Sometimes they look more drastic than others, but there's places where we can look in our rear view and see God's provision in our life and we didn't expect it. But just like the Israelites, I think we tend to have a short memory when it comes to God's provision. We need to develop a more robust sense of memory of God's provision in our life, those manna from heaven moments, so that when we're confronted with a hurdle, we're confronted with a challenge, we're confronted with something in front of us, instead of looking down and being so consumed by that thing, we remember to look back and mark those moments where God came through for our lack in big ways. Now, the second invitation here is to embrace generosity or be the provision. I think sometimes we find ourselves in our our prayer life, those of us with means that are thinking about how to live open-handedly, and we're praying, we're approaching God, and these are good prayers, and I do this myself. We're down on our knees at night or around this dinner table, and we're praying, God, please do something. Do something around the world with all this brokenness and turmoil and lack. Please do something in our community to end homelessness and solve these problems, and please make sure that everyone's taken care of. These are great prayers. These are good prayers. God loves to hear your heart. He honors them. But sometimes, I think, if we're careful to listen, the Holy Spirit inside may be shouting, I did do something. I created you. And look at everything I gave you. And it's not a moment of guilt, but it is a moment of invitation to live open-handedly. So in careful and discerning conversation with your family and with those around you, maybe consider the ways that God has blessed you to be provisioned in places where people don't have it. You could very well be the answer to a prayer that you or someone else is actually praying. Now, I don't stand up here as some sort of expert on generosity. This is something that I'm still very much trying to figure out. Katie and I talk about it often. You know, we feel that we've been blessed in certain ways, and we want to give to places like New Life Downtown, support other ministries, be sporadically generous where we can. But I know there's always room to grow. It's one of the things that I was most convicted about in my study, is that there's always room for me to be a little more open-handed and embrace the way of Jesus. So, maybe, just maybe, one of those prayers that you're praying, God's equipped you to answer. Now, the second reason I think that we choose to live closed-fistedly rather than open-handedly is identity. It's in this world of I am not enough, this I am not enoughness, and the invitation in identity is to embrace the image of God. I don't think We need more stuff to manage our images, but we need more of the image of God to manage our lives. This seems so simple and so basic, but at the same time, I know that having followed Christ for 25 years, I'm still trying to figure this out. How do I not attach my identity to something external to me? It's different for everyone. It could be the side of town you live on. It could be the car you drive. It could be your finely curated social media posts, whatever that thing is that is outside of you that you start sort of wrapping part of your life around. And you get a little nervous when someone reaches to touch that thing or challenge that thing in your life. You know, I think a great litmus test really for identity is is when it starts to feel like your things or something owns you, rather than you owning that thing, that it's demanding you to be a slave with your time or resources rather than giving you freedom, with your time and resources, that might be the moment where God's actually calling you to open-handed living for your own good. And I think that it it's, can be challenging. There's a lot that goes on inside in those moments, and a lot of conversations need to happen between those that you trust and they're seeing and speaking into your life. But maybe, just maybe, if you're finding today that your image is too deeply attached to something that you own and you're starting to feel like it owns you, God might be calling you to release that thing in a little way, so that you can be more open-handed in the way that you live your life. You know, if there was a biblical passage or character that summarized concern about identity and the way that they were unable to live open-handedly, I'd think of the rich young ruler. There's nothing wrong with the fact that he had wealth. The New Testament makes that clear in other places, but we also never really learn his name, at least to my understanding. He's just the rich young ruler, and I don't even think that's like a pejorative or negative title. He's probably known by a lot of people in his community as the rich young guy. It's just, it's, it's fascinating though when you think about the fact that he stood face to face with Jesus and Jesus invited him to release the things that were his for the life of the world and the rich young ruler couldn't do it. It was a great sacrifice to be sure but think of what he would have seen if he would have been willing to release those things that he owned, that were now owning him. Think of the wonder he would have encountered, the miracles that he would have seen. I think the thing, same thing could be true in our lives. Like we just don't know the wonder that we can encounter until we let go of those things that are taking our attention and our worship. When we could be directing them somewhere else. All right. Reason number three: fear. What if I don't have enough tomorrow? This is something that I know I've asked often. Uh, I've talked with my wife about from time to time, just trying to plan for the future, and I don't think God frowns on financial planning or saving for your kid's college or retirement. These aren't bad things, but this question, if it becomes so fear-based that it begins to consume you, it can give you sort of a myopic vision for the way that God might be calling you to live and interact with your peers. Now, you'll remember I was talking about that period between release from slavery and the receiving of the Ten Commandments, that three months in the wilderness. And I've often reflected on that, thinking um, that would have been horrible for me. Horrible. It maybe the worst part of the whole thing. I know it's Colorado heresy, but I hate camping. I hate it. I hate it. You guys can throw whatever you want. I can set up a tent. I can make a fire. But I have a real nice bed at home that I like to sleep in. And so maybe there's some of you out there that can give me an amen on that, but I do not like sleeping on the ground. And so three months of doing this, packing up tents, moving places, laying down somewhere else, not knowing what's coming next, laying down again on the ground, sleeping on the ground, terrible, absolutely terrible. So I believe, at least for me, it would have been much harder to encounter God in that sort of uncertainty and movement and changing of scenery than it would have been to feel his presence at Sinai. When we think about fear and the presence of God and embracing adventure with him, We often ask, we want those Sinai experiences, God literally talking to you, telling you what's going to come next. As a culture, we have a great disdain for uncertainty. Like how many of us in this room are driven by like our Outlook calendars and our Google calendars, whatever that app is, like trying to map out what's coming next. Uh, We want to know what's coming next, but sometimes to meet God, you have to be willing to release the knowledge of what's coming next and follow him onto an adventure into the unknown Another thing about that period, that wilderness period, is that a lot of times when we preach or talk about the wilderness, it's because Israel did something wrong and God was punishing them. And then therefore, you know, there maybe even better language for that would be like forming them, correcting them, coaching them, counseling them, shaping them into the people we wanted to be. But we often think that wilderness periods are like that. And it's true, a lot of them are. But the first time Israel experienced disorientation in the wilderness is because they had just been freed from slavery. And I think in our lives it often works the same way. Whenever you make that big faith decision and you come before the foot of the cross, whenever you leave that sin behind that's been that comfort sin, that addiction, that thing that's holding you back, it is disorienting. You're in a wild place. It's not because you're being punished. It's because God is inviting you and leading you perhaps to Sinai where you're gonna hear from him in significant ways. But the temptation that we have, just like the Israelites have had, is to pivot back and look to the known. Slavery was horrible for the Israelites, but it was a known. And they actually asked Moses in the wilderness to take them back. And I think we do the same things with the sins or those, you know, those, those comfort sins or habits in our lives or the places maybe even today, that thing that you're holding onto that you just can't let go of. It's because it's known. And let me tell you something, that the future is certainly uncertain. Certainly uncertain. You can plan and put in all these best practices, but you don't know what's coming. The American people learned this the tough way in 1929, and also again in 2008, no matter how you plan, you can't make tomorrow be the way that you want it to be. And before you knew Jesus, your future was definitely certain, but certain in that situation is also not good. So there is an invitation that comes with open-handed living that's a little uncertain, and it's disorienting, and it's uncomfortable, and you don't know what's coming next. But if you're willing to experience that wilderness period on the other side of freedom, that's where the magic happens, in my humble opinion. Now, if you've ever doubted that open-handed living can change the life of the world, I want to invite us to remember Les Mis and Jean Valjean. I promised Glenn I would not sing any songs this morning, uh, and you will all be very thankful for that as well. Uh, But if you remember the character of Jean Valjean, he ended up spending 19 years in prison, For stealing a loaf of bread. A loaf of bread. Crippling, harsh, labor camp kind of environment, and he's finally released from prison. And as he's wandering the streets, he meets this benevolent priest. We know the story, but it's worth repeating. The priest invites him in, gives him food and shelter, luxuries that Jean Valjean hadn't experienced in decades. But something snaps in the middle of the night for Jean Valjean, and he decides maybe Uh, He needs to collect all of the priest's most luxurious items, throw them in his sack, and make off in the Shroud of Night. We know that Jean Valjean was captured by the police. He was brought back. They did not believe his story, that the priest had gifted him those items. And there's this miraculous exchange when they come back to the priest's house. You know, the guards knew Jean Valjean was guilty. Jean Valjean knew he was guilty. The priest knew that he was guilty But in a moment of open-handed living, the priest said, it's true. I gave him those items, but my son, you've forgotten the candlesticks. And Jean Valjean's life has changed forever. Instead of another couple decades in prison, he goes off to change the world. The ripple effect of the priest's open-handed living is such a beautiful thing for us to think to emulate today the ways in which that can go on to touch a life and touch a life and touch hundreds of lives, and you just never know it. You may never know the impact of your open-handed action, but God sees it and he blesses it and he loves you for it. Now, as the worship team comes today, uh, I want to remember two other famous thieves, a little different than Alan Pace, the thieves on the cross. Now, a lot of times... When I was growing up and, and listening to the retellings of the crucifixion narrative, I saw myself at the foot of cross, sort of watching from a distance, really sad at what was happening. But over the years, I've realized that in my daily life, I actually probably take on the posture more of one of those two, pre- or one of those two thieves on any given day. Um, the first thief, you'll remember, asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, this day you will be with me in paradise. It's never too late to make a faith decision for Jesus, and it's never too late once you're walking with Jesus to make a decision for open-handed living. There's always that moment, even that end-of-life moment that that thief took advantage of. The other thief shows the scoff, and he shows indifference and hesitation. It's a more comfortable posture. You don't have to put yourself out there. You don't have to look funny um, making a decision that could make you publicly vulnerable but you miss out on eternity. And I know that eternity has been written in the hearts of men, and it doesn't mean that our hearts dictate eternity. It means that we're called towards God's eternity through this moment. I'd like to suggest that when we sense lack in our lives, material or a mindset of it, we press into Jesus because he is the bread of heaven. And that when we have a moment where we find our image wrapped around something that we feel like we can't control, we turn to Jesus because he's the restorer of our identities and our image. He came to restore the image that the first man broke, the first man and woman, and make things whole and make things new in our lives. And finally, for those of us that may be wrestling with a little bit of fear about the future and what would it mean to live open-handedly in my community, that seems a little unsettling and uncertain. Remember, Jesus declared himself to be the way amongst the truth and the life. He'll show you the way. It's gonna be disorienting. There may be some wild places that you encounter inside of yourself and in the world, but I would suggest that you heed the invitation because you never know what He's gonna do with it. As we approach the table today and we pray for the things that we have done, asking God forgiveness for the things that we've done, and the things that we've left undone, our prayer for all of us is that we would choose to be open-handed people. I know that it'll change your life. When I've been obedient, it's changed mine. And I pray that we'd be open-handed, open-hearted people. And I just wanna pray that for you real quick as we turn to the table. Let's pray. God, make us a people that seeks to live in your image, that chases you when we lack, that follows you into the wild places. Give us the courage to live open-handedly even when we don't want to or don't know how to. Fundamentally, Lord, help us to make that decision uh, like our brother, that thief on the cross did each and every day, not only to choose you for our salvation, but to choose you for our daily life. We need your strength in that. We need your comfort in that. And we need your peace and direction. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.